Well, good morning, Terra Nova. Um, thanks for braving the first uh, snowstorm of the year. I uh, manage a physical therapy clinic, and usually when there's the first uh, hint of snow, 50% of my patients cancel. So thanks for being more dedicated than my patients and, and being here this morning. So we are exactly two weeks from Christmas morning. And today marks the third Sunday of Advent. So in early church traditions, the final two weeks of Advent were always focused on the coming birth of Christ. In this season, our Advent focus hasn't been specifically on the expectant birth of Christ, but instead it's been focused on Christ's presence with us always. And more specifically, it's been focused on the appearances of Christ throughout the Old Testament that scholars refer to as Christophanies. And so last week we talked about the interceding God, and this week we're going to talk about the identity-giving God. So I want to start with a question in the room to you parents. Have you ever wondered or thought about what your child's going to be like? Maybe when they're first, when you find out you're pregnant, maybe when they're firstborn, you wonder, what's this child going to be like? Uh, maybe it's when you have teenagers and you're like, oh no, what's this child going to be like? No parents ever thought that, I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, but you've wondered, right? You've wondered about the identity of your child. And that made me start thinking about what Mary was thinking that morning when she was holding Jesus in that stable. She was probably exhausted. She had just traveled 90 miles over four days, pregnant on the back of a donkey, only to have to give birth in an uncomfortable stable. And not even a year ago, she had been visited by the angel Gabriel, and she was told that she was favored by God and that she would have a baby, but not with her future husband, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here she is now, 10 months later, holding this newborn baby. But Mary had a little bit of a glimpse into the identity of the child that she was holding. She, did, she was visited by the angel Gabriel, and in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, the angel said this to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, Mary was given a name for this child, and she was given a glimpse into who this child would be. Because name and purpose are really important, and they're a strong part of our identity. The one that gives names holds power, and those names often shape our identity. So Renee and I have five children, and uh, when we named our first four children, we were really intentional to, to have purpose and meaning behind those names. We wanted them to mean something. When we were surprised with the birth of our, uh, the coming birth of our fifth child, we were kind of out of names. We just, we didn't know where to start. And one of our friends suggested that we name the child Boaz. We laughed, because that was like three, that was like three and a half years ago. Like, Boaz is a little bit of an out there name. But after going through that Ruth series that we just went through and understanding who Boaz was, we were like, we should have named him Boaz. <laughs> Uh, but we named him Micah, which is, uh, which is a good name and a solid name. So any of you pregnant folks, if you want to take the name Boaz as your, as your next child, feel free. You got permission from the pulpit for that. 
Um, but I say that laughingly because names have purpose, right? Uh, and, and maybe not as much in our culture, but definitely during Old Testament times. And so, sorry, um, we're going to take a look at the life of Jacob. You know, identity is formed sometimes by the choices that we make and sometimes by the choices that we don't make. Identity can be formed by the actions or the directions that others kind of push us into. Our identity really is a complex mixture of our name, our circumstances, and our environment. But the truth here that we're going to discover today and talk about is that an identity formed without encountering the true identity giver means that there's something missing. So for our main idea, our main idea is this. Our true identity is found in Jesus. In the life of Jacob, it offers a great contrast between an identity built versus an identity given. And so we're going to spend the remainder of our morning looking at the overview of Jacob's life, how he built his identity, and how he received his identity on a fateful encounter with Jesus. So this is our roadmap. We're going to talk about building an identity. We're going to talk about Jacob's journey and also our journey in building identity. And then we're going to talk about receiving an identity, both Jacob's new identity that he received from Christ and our true identity that we receive. So if you want, you can open your Bibles to our passage for today, which is in Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32. Scripture's up there. That same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him at, as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, Lord, humble, that we know you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself through all of eternity, Lord, of all of life, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear your words that your servant gives, Lord, and that your, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would help us to identify um, what you've given us in your son, Jesus, Lord, and the identity that you give us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, before we go back to that passage, I think it's important that we talk a little bit about the life of Jacob. Um, Jacob's one of the patriarchs, 
And, you know, I'm sure many of you know your Old Testament, but sometimes it can get confusing, right? There's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob. If you haven't read the story, I'm going to refresh you a little bit, okay? So Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, who we talked about last week. And Isaac and Rebekah were Jacob's parents. Rebekah struggled to get pregnant, and she did that later in life. God gave her a child, and Rebekah said early in that pregnancy, she realized that something wasn't normal. And she said out loud, why is this happening to me? And the Lord answered her. He said, two nations are in your womb. Though ultrasounds were needed, God had told her there'd be twins. And so the time came, and Rebecca birthed her first child, who the Bible says was big and hairy, and so they named him Esau, which literally means hairy. Appropriate name, I suppose. And just as Esau came into the world, there were the tiniest little fingers in hand reaching and grabbing the heel of Esau. Their second child was born, and that child they named Jacob, which meant heel grabber. But it also had a deeper meaning. It also meant usurper and deceiver. Now, imagine with me you're at the dinner table for lots of the family functions. How many times do you think they shared that cute little story of Esau being born and Jacob just grabbing onto his leg, right? And it's just a cute story that Jacob and Esau hear over and over again. That is the building blocks, though, of some identity, right? Jacob was the one that was grabbing and always at the heels of Esau. So the boys would grow. One would grow masculine and strong. The Bible says he was a hunter. He was a man of the field. He was favored by his father. That was Esau. And the other, the Bible says, was a quiet man, dwelling in tents, always in his thoughts. He was a tent-dwelling man. That's interesting. He was loved by his mother and overlooked by his father. More of Jacob's identity is being formed. You see, sometimes our identity can be shaped by the events that are out of our control. A loving mother, an overbearing mother, an absent father, relationships. But other times, our identity is formed by pivotal moments in our life where we get to choose good choices or make bad choices. And that helps to shape our identity as well. And so we see the first pivotal moments in Jacob's life. We see him at home making stew. Esau returns and he is starving. Have you ever met an irrationally starving person? Well, if you have kids, you probably do, right? And we have five, so someone's always irrationally starving at some point in our household. But Esau is irrationally starving, so much so that he's willing to give his birthright for a bowl of lentil soup and bread. And here is an opportunity for Jacob. Jacob could serve his brother. He could just lovingly give him a little bit of stew and ease his hunger. But what does Jacob do? Jacob barters for the birthright, all of the inheritance that Esau has for that stew. That was pretty savvy by Jacob. It was pretty deceptive. Jacob had that opportunity to show kindness, but he didn't take it. Instead, he pushed into his identity, the one that would be grabbing at his brother's heel and taking, the one who would be the heel grabber, the usurper, the deceiver. The choices we make help build our identity. Sometimes what others want for us or what they think is good can help push us into that identity. In life, we're shaped by those events. In the next event in Jacob's life, we see that Isaac is about ready to die. And he sends out his favorite son for a last catch of some game to make a tasty stew. 
But here, Rebecca, the mother that loves Jacob, that wants to see her son Jacob blessed, jumps into the scene. She makes the stew, she calls Jacob, and she asks him to bring the stew to his father. The only catch is that he needs to pretend to be Esau and get the birthright. So Jacob enters that tent, tasty stew in one hand, some goat skin slapped on his arms and his neck, on his body to help deceive his father. Here I am, father, Jacob says. Who are you, my son, Isaac says. Jacob answers, I am Esau, your firstborn. But even in his old age, Isaac thinks There's not, something's not right here. It's not adding up. So he says, please come near to me so I can know whether you are really my son Esau or not. And then Isaac asks one more time, are you really my son Esau? Jacob pauses, and then he answers, I am. Pretending to be someone he's not, he pushes more into that identity that he's built. Jacob is walking in his name. He's a heel grabber, he's a deceiver, he's a usurper, and now he's a liar. This deception doesn't come without a cost because Esau and Isaac figure out what happened and they're both angry. But the blessing's been given, what's done is done. Jacob has the birthright. But Esau is angry and vows to murder him. So Jacob flees to his uncle Laban. And there he meets a beautiful cousin named Rachel, and he falls in love with her. He loves her so much that he works seven years for her. Jacob gets ready to marry Rachel, and after a beautiful wedding ceremony, I'm sure, Jacob wakes up the next morning next to his beautiful bride, only to find she's not quite as beautiful as he thought. It's not Rachel, it's Leah. It turns out that Uncle Laban is pretty good at deception himself. Probably runs in the family, right? And so Jacob has to agree to another seven years of work, but he gets to marry Rachel right away. So fast forward 14 years into exile from home. There's Jacob. He has two wives, he has multiple servants, and he has 11 children. And he's ready to leave. He's ready to go home. So he negotiates with Laban his payment. You remember this story? He negotiates payment. It, it's all of the black and speckled and striped sheep and goats in Laban's, um, in Laban's flock. Laban agrees to that, but quickly takes all of those sheep for himself, and Jacob is again left with nothing. So Jacob does what Jacob does best, even though he has to start over. He schemes again by spending the next several years breeding all of the strongest animals in Laban's flock and taking them for himself. It takes another five or six years for Jacob to accumulate the wealth, but now he's ready to leave, to make it on his own, to take his family and his wealth and go. And this time he's not gonna tell Laban because he doesn't wanna be deceived again. So he deceives Laban by just leaving in the middle of the night. And Uncle Laban isn't happy about this and he catches up to Jacob. But not before God, in a dream, warns Laban to not harm Jacob. So Jacob and Laban, they meet, they have it out, but they come to terms and Laban blesses Jacob's family and Jacob is finally free. He has walked in that identity as a usurper, as a liar, as a deceiver, but it, he's done pretty well, really. Um, he's got wives, he's got servants, he's got wealth, and now he's finally free and he gets to go home. But 
he needs to go home and confront his brother Esau if he's to take some land that is his. So last he knew, 20 years ago, Esau was ready to murder him. So Jacob does what Jacob does best. He schemes and he plans ahead and sends messengers and some, some gifts to pacify Esau, hoping that'll help. But the messengers come back and they say this. They say, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. 400 men is a lot of men. Jacob would have remembered that his, his grandfather Abraham, with 318 men, conquered four kings. So 400 men and a brother that wanted to meet, murder you 20 years ago is a scary proposition. So he's naturally fearful. But Jacob continues to do what he does best. He takes all of his wealth and he staggers it in four stages, hoping that as Esau comes every time, those gifts would pacify Esau. When, so when he finally got to Jacob, maybe things would be all right. Jacob was willing to give up almost everything that he had built for peace with Esau. Or so we think. I don't know if we can really trust Jacob's schemes, right? But that's, that's what the story that we're presented. So he takes all his remaining possessions, his wives and his children, and he sends them across the river. So Jacob has built his identity, and it's led him to this point. He's pushed into the narrative of his life, the name he was given, and the identity that he was built. Some of it the fault of others, some of it the choices that he's made. But here he is, and the Bible says Jacob was alone. He was alone with everything, stripped of everything, and left to wait. Have you guys ever worked for something very hard to build an identity and wondered if it was enough? Or maybe you built that identity, that who you wanted to be, and you failed, and it didn't turn out like you would. Jacob's not different than you and I. We all look to build identity in our life. And it's often that complex mix of our gifts and our talents, the pressures and the expectations of life, the circumstances we're given, the unfortunate events that happen, our sinful nature, and even the good choices we make. That makes up our identity. And I would say that most of us probably find our identity in two main areas. One would be performance, and the other would be relationship. And so by performance, what I mean is that we find, we find our success and our identity in the things that maybe we're good at. Maybe it's sports. We find our identity in our sports. I'm a basketball player. I'm a, I'm a soccer player. I'm really good at this. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, right? We may find our identity in school. We might be really good at something. We might push into that. We might find our identity in our job. We might find our identity in promotions or money. We build into performance. And so when we succeed, we feel really good. That fuels our identity. We feel independent. We feel like we can take on the world. And when we fail, when we build into those things, what happens? We maybe lose confidence. We maybe aren't sure of who we really are. It maybe changes our path when we fail at something or we can't do something that we thought we were good because we built our identity on performance. That second area that we find identity in is relationships what our family thinks about us, what our friends think about us, the friends we make, the friends we wish we had. Those experiences in relationship, those failures, those hurts, they all shape us. And let's not forget that the love and affection, the desire for a spouse, that affects us, that shapes our identity. Relationships de define the perception of who we are and it helps to build that identity. 
I know for me growing up, I was intertwined, I often intertwined that category of relationship in my identity. Finding someone to love and to be loved oftentimes overweighed seeking God's will for my life. I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home um, and walked with Jesus, I would say. But I often just wanted a relationship, just wanted a significant other, right? Someone to love, someone to be loved. And let me pause here and say there's nothing inherently in bad. God's created men and women to be together, to be in relationship, right? Um, but when you put too much on that, it starts to change your identity. So I found, even though growing up in a Christian home, you know, the idea, the goal is to be equally yoked, to find that spouse that loves Jesus too. But I often found that uh, there's not a lot of Christian girls around, or there's not a lot of people, women that love Jesus. So I started to settle. So I settled for the nice, kind, moral girl, which was good. It was, it was okay, right? But the problem is that the nice, moral girl doesn't love Jesus. And if those are your values and those are what you've built your identity on, at some point they come into conflict. And so for me, it was after college, breaking off a long-term relationship because I realized that it wasn't the identity I wanted to build. But I wasn't really ready to fully commit to Jesus, to fully walk after him. And so I remember that day, I was lying in bed at night, and I was lonely, depressed, and not really focused on God, but willing to still pray to God. And I cried out to God a simple prayer, and I just said, Lord, give me a relationship. Give me a woman that loves you. That night, I felt like Jacob. I was stripped. I was lonely. I didn't know where to go, but I did cry out that prayer. You see, Jacob built that identity, he worked hard, and he ultimately found himself helpless by the river. But notice what Jacob does when he's been stripped of everything. When he schemes and all his deception is gone, he leans into God. So in the passage right before that, we see that Jacob actually prayed to God. He called out to God right before he sent his family away, and he was, was down by the river. And this is his prayer, Genesis 32, 9 through 12. It should be on our screen. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. So Jacob, stripped of everything, he calls out to God. And it's interesting, in this prayer, he does two things. First, he makes his request known to God. But then, left with nothing, what does Jacob do? He appeals to the promises of God. Because Jacob, his grandfather was Abraham. He knew the covenant that God had made with Abraham to, to bless many peoples through him. And Jacob's father was Isaac, and God had reminded Isaac of that promise. And then there was years ago when Jacob left, fleeing Esau, where God appeared to him in a dream. And in Genesis 28, he told him this. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. 
The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Twenty years ago, Jacob had seen this dream from God. He had heard from God. And in the midst of his lowest point of his life, he calls out and he leans on the promises of God. Folks, that's something that, that we maybe don't do very often. When we're at our lowest point, when we don't know what to pray, or we're praying for specific things, it's okay to just lean on the promises of God, to be in the Psalms, to, see, to cry out to God, to wrestle with God, to lean on the comforts of his word in those times when we don't know what else to do. Because Jacob knew that God's blessing for his life was there, but he never fully trusted it. And so he schemed and he worked and he did his own thing to get that blessing. But now he's got no choice but to just ask humbly. So he prays that prayer, night falls, and it brings us to our main passage that we just read earlier. A man appears. He confronts Jacob at the stream, and the scripture says that they wrestle all night long. So let's just pause here for a second. I'm not a wrestler, but I'm sure that some of you guys, or gals, probably guys, but wrestled in high school, college. How long is a wrestling match in, in high school? Six minutes. I thought it was seven, so six minutes. How do you feel at the end? Have you ever seen a wrestler at the end of six minutes? It's pure exhaustion, right? Like I was exhausted walking up the incline to get into here today. <laughs> but yet Jacob wrestled all night with this man. I, I can't imagine what that was like. So Jacob is physically exhausted. But I imagine that Jacob probably thinks he's doing pretty good. I mean, if you can last all night wrestling with anybody, that's pretty good. And light is coming, so maybe this is going to end. But just as day breaks, this man, the Bible says, touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. So here is Jacob. He's at the point of exhaustion. He hasn't given up. And all this man simply does is touch his socket, and he dislocates it. Pause here again. So understand if you want to question my preaching or theology, because I'm just the lay guy. I understand that. It's okay. But I'm a physical therapist. I've been a therapist for 20 years. And when I tell you that the hip joint is one of the most stable and strongest joints of our body, I'm not lying. It's surrounded by the biggest and strongest muscles in our body, and it's covered by some of the strongest ligaments. To dislocate a hip is rare. How often do you see that in sports, in football? You don't see it. But the Bible says this man touches his hip, and it's dislocated. Even in his pain and suffering, and here's the beauty, even in his pain and suffering, Jacob doesn't let go of this man. And finally, Jacob asks him to be blessed. And this man says to Jacob, what is your name? Such a simple question, but boy, that is a loaded question. At the end of his rope, all angles played, everything gone, all deceptions run out, he answers, Jacob. But this wasn't an introduction. This was a confession. I am Jacob. I am deceiver. I am a usurper. I am an inheritance stealer. I am a conniver. I am nothing. 
And see, he could confess to this man his name because this wasn't just a man that he was wrestling with. Spoiler alert, it was Christ. It was Jesus that he was wrestling with. And see, you might think, hmm, maybe not. But Jacob knew who he was wrestling with. In, in, in Genesis 32, verse 1, it talks about that Jacob had encounters with angels. He knew what angels were. He knew he wasn't wrestling an angel. So Jacob knows who this is. And he says, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And Jesus, with the one who is the one in authority, and one with power, he gives him a new name. Only people with authority and power can give names. As parents, you give names because you have authority over your kids. This man gives Jacob a new name. Jesus gives Jacob a new name. And that name would be Israel. God's fighter is what it means. God fights. Jacob leaves wounded, forever changed, and given that new name. And that name Israel, Jacob would be the father of 12 tribes. You guys know the story from there. The covenant that God had given to Abraham was for the blessing of the entire world, and it was on the move. God was on the move in Jacob's life. Jacob wrestled with God, and he received that new identity. And it's often when we're at the lowest points in our life, when we cry out to Jesus, where we find that identity and that purpose, or we hear that answer in prayer. So rewind back to my life. As I prayed that night, and I thought I knew what I needed, and so I asked God specifically for that, which was just a good Christian woman. It's all I need. I'll be happy. I'll be content. I'll be fulfilled. I'll seek you after that, God. The answer, the response that I received from God was as clear as it could have been audible. His response was, I won't give you what you need, Jason, until you seek me with all your heart. See, my identity wasn't to be found in the love of a woman or a nice Christian girl. It was to be found in him. And I didn't wake up the next day and start reading my Bible and worshiping God, but it was a slow change. When I mean slow, like a couple month change where God changed my heart. He gave me a desire to seek him more. And eventually he blessed me. He gave me Christian community. He gave me a church I loved. He gave me Christian friends that I still have to this day, 20 years later. And eventually, when the time was right, he gave me a beautiful bride who loved Jesus more than me. And that was the key. So I just want to pause here and just speak to the folks that are single in this room. I just encourage you, if your identity is already in Christ, keep that identity in Christ. Don't seek after a spouse that doesn't yet know the Lord. Christian missionary dating has a really low batting average of success. You want to be equally yoked. Marriage is hard. And marriage between two people who love Jesus is hard too. And when you marry someone or you seek a spouse that doesn't love the Lord, and you do, it's going to make life hard. Maybe not in the beginning, when things are great and happy and you're building a life together and you're in love. You still stay in love when you're married. I'm not saying you don't, right? But maybe not in the beginning. But ask yourself this question. If I go through some really hard times with this person, what will my life be like? If we encounter death together, and I want to cling to God and Jesus, 
and seek him and my spouse doesn't, what will my life be like? It's not impossible, but it'll be hard. And I encourage you to do the hard work in your thoughts as you're, in your singleness. God will bless you when you seek him, whatever that is for your life. But just consider the big picture, because it's hard to find someone who loves Jesus, but it's even harder to be unequally yoked for a long time in your marriage. Okay, I'm paused. We'll go back to the story. So that night by the river, Jacob received his true identity in God. And like Jacob, we receive our true identity from Jesus. And the beauty is that when we receive that true identity, we no longer need to work for that identity, but we get to work from that identity. I'm going to say that again. When we receive Christ, we no longer need to work for an identity. We get to work from that identity. And what I mean by that is that when you work from this identity that you've been given, you're a child of God. You're redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus. And so when you struggle in relationship, when you struggle in performance, it doesn't define you. When you succeed in relationship, when you succeed in performance, it doesn't define you. Those are blessings, but it doesn't define you because you are a child of God. And when you work from, or sorry, when you work for an identity, you're working on a very slippery slope and a poor foundation. So as I close, I just want to ask some final questions. My question is simply, have you received your true identity from the only one who can give it, which is Jesus? And some of you may ask, well, how do I receive that true identity? Well, you receive that true identity by accepting, okay? Accepting that there is God, that God has been in control. As Jacob did, he accepted who God was. You need to accept that he exists, that he loves you. And then you need to acknowledge, simply acknowledge that you can't do it all yourself, that the identities you've built have failed and have left you broken, that you've sinned, that you've hurt others, that others have hurt you, that you live in a fallen world. You need to accept that. And then you just simply need to ask for Jesus to be in your heart. The gift of Christ is free, and that's why we focus these four weeks on that coming birth of Christ, because that child is going to grow, and he's going to live a perfect life, and he's going to do miracles, and then he's going to be sacrificed never for no reason other than for the love that he has for us, for you and I, because we couldn't live that life. And that brings us closer to God. So you just need to ask. The Bible says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. You ask and you receive that new identity from Christ. So as we sit here, I would, and I close, I'd say, if I'm going to categorize folks in this room, I would say there's probably three categories of us today. Some of you are still on that journey. You haven't really fully embraced that identity in Jesus, and that's okay. My encouragement to you would be to seek, continue to seek that identity. Open yourself up to what it would be like to have true forgiveness, to be able to walk as a child of God. And some of you, I recognize, have received that identity in Christ a long time ago, 
and you've walked with him. And so my encouragement to you would be to continue to walk for them. Because even when we receive that new identity, it doesn't make life perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't get pulled in directions. Our sinful desires, the world, everything pulls us in different directions. We need to always be reorienting ourselves to that identity. It doesn't make life easy as we walk. Jacob was touched on the socket. He dislocated his hip, and for the rest of his life, he walked with a limp. That was a reminder that life was hard, that there was sacrifice involved in, in accepting that identity. But I don't think Jacob would change anything if you had asked him. And last, if I was going to categorize people, I would say that some of you, I imagine, have never really found identity with Jesus, but maybe you think you have. Maybe you've come to church, you've served, you've done good things, you're a good person. Christianity or church is part of your life, but it's not, but Jesus isn't your life. Or maybe you're here because this is just your parents' faith and you got to come to church and you haven't really yet received that full identity. There's no shame in being in that place. But I would say, don't stay there. You need to wrestle with God. It's okay. Jesus came in the muck, in the mire, and he wrestled all night with Jacob because he loved him and because he wanted to bless the whole world. Jesus came in that manger. Jesus died on that cross because he wanted to save the whole world. So wrestle with that. You can be changed when you accept Christ. But anyone who has not fully wrestled with God, who has not contemplated those things, I would question if you've really received your full identity. Don't stay where you are. I encourage you to do the work. Wrestle with God. He can handle your questions and your problems. So 2,000 years ago, when Mary was holding that baby Jesus in that stable, she knew the child she had in her arms would change the world. She didn't know how or exactly why or even maybe what God was doing. But it's in her humble submission to the angel Gabriel that we see her humility and servant-like attitude. And she says this to the angel Gabriel, not knowing all that God has planned, but being obedient. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to your word. So Tara, may we be oh, as humble as Mary and as persistent as Jacob in seeking that true identity from our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. You give us purpose. Lord, you love us. You love every one of your creation, Lord. You haven't left us. You have been there from the beginning, God. From the beginning, you have seen this world, and yet you have still entered it, and you have saved us, Lord. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would just imprint identity in you on our people, Lord God, on your people. Lord, would you just bring us to a point where we can worship you, knowing that you have built the foundation of our life, Lord, and that you are that foundation, Lord. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we lift these things up to you. Amen.